Good evening to everyone. Once again, it is a blessing and privilege to be here with you. I appreciate your interest in spiritual things, your dedication to make time to be here tonight. I know there are thousands of other things that the world could call us to this evening, but you have chosen to be here and to attend to these things, the words of life, the words that come from God's Word. And I am honored and humbled by your presence and interest and the invitation to participate in this. Yesterday, we talked a lot about Babylon and how we live in a form of Babylon today. And that poses a significant challenge to us. While the world would call us to be identified with it, to pledge our allegiance to the world, and to look just like everyone around us, we know that God asked us to come out of Babylon. He calls us to a great city that is not of this earth, but has foundations in the heavens. And thus we are pilgrims. We are exiles in this land. And we are sojourning, looking for that great and glorious heavenly celestial city. And it is a wonderful thing that we can go and pursue that together with Christians in a community that we talked about last night. And the importance of the community of the church and the importance of our work together. But we still face significant challenges at every side. And tonight, I'd like to bring things a little closer to home, pun intended. Because the home is under attack by Babylon. And there's various reasons why, and most of these are obvious. Because just like the church poses an antidote and destabilizes the authoritarian reach of Babylon, so too does the home. The home is the first institution that God created. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, we see that man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, a family unit. Marriage was the foundation of that home. And we see that this was what God intended for all of time. Jesus talks about this in Matthew the 19th chapter and said, In the beginning, it was supposed to be what God had joined together, let no man separate. The husband and wife were the foundation for marriage and for the family. But yet, in the world that we live in now, we see that the home is attacked, marriage is attacked, children are attacked by all counts. There are movements in our society that openly profess that their goal is to deteriorate and demolish the concept of the traditional family. There are others who promote the idea that the state should have full control over the education, the health choices, and even the religious and philosophic perspectives of children. And through all of this, we even have more personal attacks. Homes have been torn asunder in the last hundred years in our society by rampant divorce, by apostates who have left the faith, by false teaching that has entered the home, by a deviation of standards for discipline and instruction. And you see there are problems all over the place. It's interesting, even looking closer to ourselves and thinking about what has been plaguing homes, we understand something is amiss. Because we know that God, and we're going to talk about this, God gives the instruction to parents, the command to parents to instruct their children. But yet, what do we see? We see time after time, families not doing that, we see the disastrous effects. It's been estimated that somewhere between 40 to 60% of children 
raised in Christian homes, if we can use that term accommodatively, 40 to 60% of those children will leave the faith. And these statistics bear out. I remember my father talking about all the people that he grew up with that still were not part of the faith anymore. And I've seen it even in my life. Friends that I grew up with that were raised in the church, so to speak, that no longer are faithful, no longer identify with any sort of Christianity whatsoever. And we'd look around and we're like, what is happening? Why is this happening? And I would submit to you that it's nothing new in terms of the struggles of what exiles have had to face, in terms of Satan's attacks against the family. But we have grown soft and complacent in defending that which is most sacred. The home is a sacred institution. It provides a counter to Babylon in the fact that it provides love. It mirrors the relationship between God and His people. It is a place where there is safety, security, and opportunity for instruction in the way of the Lord. Satan hates everything about the family. And so he wants to destabilize it at every single point. And we have to be careful about this. And so I'd like to first start off with a scripture that we've already referenced in this gospel meeting, but is very important. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. We're starting with this text because it ties into the concepts of Babylon that we've been talking about, but it really helps us set the stage for the cosmic battle that we're talking about when we talk about for the home. We're not just talking about issues of bickering or complaining or things of that nature. Those are important, but we're talking about importance of this. Because I know that sometimes when we're dealing with things on a domestic level at home, it can be discouraging. None of us are perfect. We are fallen beings living in a fallen system. And we make mistakes. And it can just wear on us and grate on us. And there are many times we feel like, well, what am I even doing? You mothers who train your children and discipline them. Maybe even here at the assembly you think, oh man, I've got to take my kids and it's going to be a challenge. I've got to discipline them, I've got to train them, and we've got to sit through so long, Caleb's going to blab on forever and ever, and it's going to be really terrible. Yeah, I understand. It is tough. And perhaps you think, I'm not getting so much out of the lesson. What you're doing in instructing, every single work that we do, every single stone, brick that we lay in terms of the foundations and the structure of our homes is a part of a cosmic struggle, and it never goes to waste. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 where our true struggle lies. And if you remember, I said, our struggle really isn't against Babylon. We are called in Romans 13 to submit to Babylon and its laws in so much that they do not force us to go against the law of God. But where our struggle, where our battle really is, is in the heavenly places. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you are able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So when we think about these attacks, it's not just, oh, this political party wants to take control of education. Oh, it's not just this particular group is destabilizing marriage. It's not just these temptations that arise within the home or the challenges that come up. Every single part of this struggle here 
is a cosmic battle against the forces of darkness in the heavenly places. That changes the way that we think about it. That changes the way that as parents, when we encounter our kids and engage with our kids, we need to think, man, I need to put on God's armor to do this. I'm going to battle here. This is a war. No one enters into a war zone nonchalant and think, you know, it's no big deal. We equip ourselves with protection and armor, and then we go to battle. Same has to be considered when we think about the discipline of children and the way that we orient our homes. And I know some of you might be thinking, okay, well, what's the big deal about this, Caleb? I don't have kids. Or I'm a grandparent. This doesn't apply to me any longer. I would submit to you that this lesson is for everyone. If you're a grandparent, we're going to see that you have a lot of responsibilities in here. If you don't have children, this are, these are things that you need to think about in preparation of either having children, or if God wills that you don't ever have children, you need to be supporting others in this. We need to be bearing a standard of distinction from the world because we are operating by God's standards on this. And it's tough. This is something that we shouldn't feel isolated about, but as a community, we need to get behind and support these standards. Some might think I made a bit of a stretch in talking about the cosmic level of these uh, battles that we have. But isn't it interesting, as Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, this great struggle we have of the world forces of this darkness, that he's talking about that in chapter 6, but at the beginning of chapter 6, he talks about the importance of disciplining your children and the proper order of which a home should be established. Father and mother are the foundation. The marriage is the first and foremost. It is the keystone of the relationship of the whole home. Parents who put their children before their mate are bound to find many problems and many disasters. That's not how God organized it. If we want to find success in a biblical way, in a spiritual form, we have to follow God's pattern. I've often said this in personal Bible studies with people, whether talking about marriage or the home. Who knows better how to conduct something than the creator of that thing? And they said, well, that makes sense. If someone invented this and he made it and he designed it and he has helped propagate it, of course he knows how it's going to work. I said, exactly. So when we come to things about the home and the family, why do we not go to God's Word? If God instituted marriage and God ordained the family, why don't we pay attention to what He has to say about it? We should. That's obvious. It's interesting when we look out into the world around us, there are a lot of people, secular materialists, who want to say, well, no, marriage is really not natural. Humans are created to be polygamous, and polyamory is all on the rise. We really shouldn't have this constitution of marriage because it is something that is man-made and societally created as a part of the patriarchy and all of this stuff. And I will agree with them on one level. I will say, yes, you're right. Marriage is not natural. It is supernatural. In the form that it is not something that evolved in a natural form of the mind of man. It wasn't a product of the patriarchy or of the matriarchy. It was a product of our divine creator. And because it is something that is supernatural, it is a divine, sacred institution, we then need to pay attention to what the 
Creator says about it. And Paul is telling us exactly what the Creator has in mind for this institution of the home. He starts off in Ephesians 6, verse 1, saying, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be, uh, turn out well for you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We're going to analyze this a little bit deeper, because this is a fundamental text to talk about what's going on inside the home, and how we as parents, grandparents, and how we have been part of families, every single one of us has been part of a family, or we are part of a family right now. And we need to understand that Satan, at the very foundation of the family, wants to uh, decouple, desituate, destabilize our connection to God's pattern with the family. And we must resist that with all our might. We must turn again to the biblical pattern for this. We see two things here, and this is uh, illustrated once again in the concepts of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, which we're going to look at in just a second. But we need to understand the importance of what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 6, connected with verses 10 through 14. This is a war. This is a battle. This is something we have to fight as if our lives are on the line. How many of you fathers, in thinking about protecting your children or your wife, would lay down your lives for them? In a heartbeat. It's not even a question if someone came into your house. You would fight like a wild tiger to protect your children. Most of us are never called to that point of actually physically laying down our lives for our children. But if we are willing to even consider that, and to go to such lengths of self-sacrifice, why not operate on the same level and ferocity when Satan levels attacks to destroy our family's soul? We should approach it with the same level of intensity. Oh, I think a bulb went out. Okay, wow. <laughs> so, let's open our Bibles. You're not going to get any of the uh, benefit of looking at the scriptures on the uh, PowerPoint presentation for tonight. So open your Bibles, please, to Colossians, the fourth chapter. Colossians chapter 4. And we will continue the discussion here on Colossians chapter 4 in terms of what Paul has outlined for us. Colossians, the fourth chapter. And we are in, uh, pardon me, Colossians chapter 3, and we are in verse 20. Paul says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so they will not lose heart. So we want to first want to start with the idea of the battle for the heart. Parents, we have the first and foremost responsibility, not only in terms of that's what God has ordained, but also we're older. We're the ones that are the captains of the ship. Husband and wife are meant to lead the family. They are the trailblazers there. That's what they're supposed to do. And that is exactly what God called us to. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the point of this instruction? That children need to be obedient to their parents, and that parents need to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as the King James Version says, Ephesians 6 verse 4, or as the New American Standard says, that they, we need to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
What's the purpose of it? We're to care for their hearts, their souls. Charlie McCollum, who's an elder in Dallas, Texas, he was very helpful. Him and his wife were very helpful to Kayla and I, and they were always very fond of talking about that parenting was a battle for the soul of your child and their heart. You have to battle for their heart. Think of it like a toss-up in a basketball game. When that first jump ball is gone, you battle for it, for possession. And that's what you have to do for your child. You have to battle for the possession of your child's heart. And that's where discipline comes into idea, this concept. When we think about discipline, and we talked about discipline a little bit yesterday, and the idea of being a runner and training yourself. It's something that you have to be dedicated day in and day out. You have to make sacrifices. You have to forego certain things. You have to push yourself when you're tired. Parenting is very similar to this. But it's wrong to think about discipline, and the world has a very specific way of it, the way it wants to talk about discipline. Oh, discipline is oppressive. Discipline is cruel. Discipline is abusive to your child. Let's be very clear. Have there been parents who have been abusive to their children? Yes. Is that sinful? Absolutely. Parents who are abusive to their children, who let out their anger, their frustration, who do not follow the patterns of discipline that God has ordained, are not following the truth. And they will be held accountable for that. They can do terrible, uh, uh, terrible disaster, uh, have terrible disastrous impacts to their child. So when we think about discipline, discipline is not some lockstep of cruel and abusive, harsh treatment to the child. In fact, in Psalm 103 and verse 13, we see this connection of God's relationship to us as a father should relate to his child. Because we've already established this in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians 3, that fathers should not provoke their children to anger. They should not exasperate their children. And in Psalm 103.13, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Fathers, in the battle for the hearts of your children, you must be loving. You must be compassionate. You should reflect the same love to your children that you want to receive from God. This is a principle Jesus establishes time and time again. If we are not willing to love others, we should not expect God's love for us. If we are not willing to forgive others, we should not expect God to forgive us. Same thing goes with compassion. We must demonstrate to them the importance of love, and as that is foundational for their relationship to God. But it's not just all about love. It's not just about roses and butterflies and sunshine. No, it's also understanding that there are consequences. In this system that God has created, God loves us and He has shown us tremendous compassion, but He still allows us to meet the consequences of things in this life. In Proverbs 23, verses 13 through 14, Solomon instructs saying, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Why is Solomon instructing the punishment of the rod for the child? Because he's a sadist and he just likes beating his child? No, that is not correct. And any parent that takes pleasure in abusing their child in a form, is that is not the biblical form. Even, I would say, if you take pleasure in disciplining your child in terms of corporal punishment, that is a problem. 
It's not something you should enjoy to do, but it's something that we must do. That is important to do. Why? Not out of vengeance, not out of retribution. Christians shouldn't seek vengeance or retribution. Definitely not out of anger. But recognizing that we are helping shape the worldview of this child and helping deliver them from hell by showing there are consequences to our actions. Those who don't understand that there are consequences to their actions live in a very self-centered, selfish way and just seek to gratify themselves. We all know people who have been raised that way, and we see the disastrous impact of that even to this day. People feel in our culture that they have a right not to be offended, that they can just do whatever they want, that money doesn't matter, that there's freedom without any impact whatsoever. That is a disastrous worldview that leads to death, destruction, and many terrible consequences. And so when we think about this, we have on one hand, we are supposed to show compassion, love, patience to our children, but at the other hand, we're supposed to discipline them and in so in a corrective way. How do we reconcile these things together? They have to be reconciled together. It's absolutely important. Why? Because their soul depends on it. How so? Parents, this is something that if you've been a parent for very long and you look at the way your child looks at you, you'll notice that you start to frame their entire way of the world. And it goes, not, it goes deeper than just their way of the world that you frame, but their very expectation and perception of God is formed by you. That's tough. I've talked with people who have gone through abuse as a child, and they don't trust God because they see God as a terrible, sadistic creator that just wants to damn all of His creation. And it's very hard for people who come through abusive situations like that to change their perception about God. I know it's not everybody, but I've met several people who have fallen into that category. And I've met other people too that whose parents are just extremely egalitarian, that whatever goes, there's no consequence. You just live and let live and there's no problem. And guess what their concept of God is? Well, God's not going to judge me. There's no way God, uh, a righteous God could send me to hell. God's just going to accept everybody, not a problem. Parents, that's a lot to think about, right? Is that the way that I interact with my child, the way that I teach my child, has an impact on the way that they will understand God. Will have an impact on their faith for the rest of their life. That is a huge responsibility. One that should not be taken lightly. And before we despair and think, oh no, what can we do? We need to return our minds and hearts back to God's Word because God is equipping us. God is teaching us how to take such tremendous responsibility. And He teaches us the importance of diligent discipline. But I want you to think about discipline in two forms. We're going to break this concept of discipline down a little bit more. First off, we think about discipline as we normally think about it in a colloquial sense. Something that is correct. Right? No, you did this. Don't do that. I'm correcting you. I'm steering you back on course. You've deviated. You have had this detour. That's not the right way. Come back. I'm pulling you back. This concept of corrective discipline is demonstrated in Proverbs 13, verse 24, where the proverb writer says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, 
but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It's tough to be diligent, consistent in our discipline. It is something that is a battle. It is a war for the heart of your child. Because foolishness is bound up into the heart of the child because we are all live in a fallen system. And they are going to test the limits. You make a rule, they're going to push the rule. You can give them the perfect instruction possible and they're going to do something that comes apparently out of thin air that is completely not the right thing to do. I've seen parents just exasperated because they're like, I've never lied to my child, but here he is lying. Where did he learn to lie? I've never said things and my child has said things. Yes, because your child is a part of the fallen system that we all are. We all are imperfect. And the answer to that is not to get exasperated, is not to get frustrated, is not to give up, or just to lower your standards. It's to respond with diligence and discipline. It takes that correction that is there. But correction by itself is not enough. It is absolutely important. If your child deviates, that you correct bring them back on the right way. But you should also have the second part of discipline. The first part, as we mentioned, is corrected. The second part is instructed. In Proverbs 22 and verse 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The proverb writer is not speaking about once saved, always saved, or this deterministic view of, well, if you train your child and you put this input, they will be a robot and do exactly what you say. It's not what it's saying. But what he is saying is that you are going to set a path for your child, and that path would be very difficult for them to deviate from if you've established it correctly. Now, this becomes to be very difficult to examine and to be honest about. Because each one of us is sowing something. Each one of us is laying forth a pattern. And we're going to be talking about this in greater detail as we go. But this idea of setting forth this pattern and way for my child is absolutely important in an instructive way. I shouldn't just tell my child we're doing something wrong. I need to explain to them the right thing to do. And I need to persuade my child. I need to fight for their heart their affections, their spirit, to train them the right way to go. Because if all it is in serving God, and all it is is that, well, I don't want to go to hell, you're not going to generate and cultivate faith in your child. Fear, but not faith. Faith requires God's Word. Romans 10, 17. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And many times, we fail the instructive, the proactive part of discipline because we don't have that in our own lives. Think about it with whether you're talking about sports or martial arts or training or even your workplace. There are times where you have to go through corrective things. You erred. You did something wrong. You need to go and correct it. But there's a whole lot more that is given in terms of instruction. This is what you should do. This is the right way to go. We understand that, and that's how we need to be applying this in terms of our children as well. Texts that bring both of these together, this idea of the corrective and instructive, are texts like Proverbs 29 and verse 17. that say, discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. You want your child to do the right thing? 
Do you want your child to give delight to your heart? To be proud of your child? For your child to succeed you in every way? Then discipline him with diligence. Not out of vengeance. Not out of anger. But out of corrective and instructive discipline from the Lord. This requires us as parents to examine ourselves. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah 35, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time in Jeremiah 35. I love this story in Jeremiah 35, and this was recently brought to my remembrance, and it's about a group of people called the Rechabites. And in the middle of a siege where Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had come around Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is about to be overthrown, God calls Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I want you to go and call some of these Rechabites and I want you to set up a test for them in the temple. Okay? He goes and he sets all this wine before them in the temple in this special chamber. We're in verses 1 through 10 of Jeremiah 35. And he pours the pitchers and he brings the Rechabites before. And here we have Jeremiah, the prophet of God, in the holy place of the temple. And they're in one of these chambers of the temple. And they're in this very weird situation where the Rechabites have been displaced from where they normally live, which is outside the gates. And they are now here before Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, the wine is poured, drink the wine. And how do the Rechabites respond? It's interesting. Notice with me. And verse 6 of Jeremiah 35, after they are told to drink the wine. But they said, We will not drink wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father commanded us, saying, You shall not drink wine, you or your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, and you shall not sow, and you shall not plant a vineyard or own one, but in tents you shall dwell all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. And we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us not to drink the wine all of our days, we, are, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, and we do not have vineyard or field or seed. We have only dwelt in tents and have obeyed and have done according to all that Jonadab, our father, has commanded us. To understand how interesting this is, these Rechabites, they lived completely different. Everyone else lived in the safe walls of the city. Everyone else drank wine. Everyone else owned fields and did all these things. But the Rechabites didn't do it. Why? Because their father, Jonadab, said no. But when we think about the word father, father here isn't like literally their, their, their father, their dad. Jonadab was a patriarch. In fact, when this happens... When Jeremiah goes to them and offers the challenge, says, drink the wine, and they don't drink the wine, they say, faithful to Jonadab, this was about 250 years after Jonadab lived. The Rechabites still stayed faithful to the teaching of Jonadab over two and a half centuries later. It's incredible. And God uses them as an example. And God blesses the Rechabites and says, look, Israel, if the Rechabites can stay faithful to Jonadab, a man, their father, why can't you stay faithful to me, God the Father? And God warns and 
He ultimately punishes Israel for their lack of faithfulness. But when we think about this as, as a parent and as a battle for the hearts of your children and, and your, your, um, your lineage, so to speak, of those who will come after you, John had had like one, right? I mean, the Rechabites, 250 years later, are still following Jonadab's commands and walking after righteousness. They are faithful to that. Jonadab disciplined. They continued to discipline and follow. And that's awesome. I mean, that sounds incredible, right? And we're like, man, wouldn't it be great if you know, our children followed in that same lineage of faith and they had a heritage like that? That they were able to stay faithful to the customs of what was right? Yeah, it would. But we need to stop and ask ourselves, wait a second, what happened with Jonadab? Because Jonadab wasn't just an average guy. And if we are going to have an above-average lineage, a legacy of the faith, we can't just be average or mediocre. Jonadab was a beast, if you would let me use that phrase. He was incredible. This was a guy that was completely devoted to the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 9, I'm not going to go back and read this text, but Jehu is going through the land, and God is using Jehu to wreak havoc on the household of Ahab and bring vengeance against the nation of Israel. And Jehu is just going through and laying waste to everybody, and he comes up to Jonadab, and Jonadab says, I'm going to help you. We are going to maintain faithful. And in a time of extreme idolatry and wickedness, Jonadab sanctified himself first. The guy was incredible, a man of a different spirit. He set himself apart in every way. He was wholly devoted to the Lord. And that man that was a leader, that was different, set the course of an entire lineage of family for over two and a half centuries, and God blesses them because they're still faithful to the instruction of Jonadab. To have an incredible victory in the battle of the home, you have to be incredible in your walk and in your holiness. This is something that is so vitally important for us. Because there are many times where we want to cut corners. It's tough. We get home from work. We have a long day. We are out of our minds having to deal with our kids or our grandkids or situations around us. And we just want to relax. We just want to punt it down the road and deal with it later. But to be like a Jonadab, you've got to step up. You've got to go and tear down all the idols. You've got to go against the current. You've got to make sacrifices. That hurt. And you have to be extraordinary in your own faith. We have to discipline ourselves. Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, is a text that a lot of people talk about when we talk about disciplining our children and training and instructing our children. And it's a great text that we should pay a lot of attention to. And not just in terms of a passing uh, mention of, oh, well, this is how we train our kids. No, we need to take this to heart and live it in our lives. In Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, in verse four, God is giving Israel the important instruction of how they should diligently instruct their children. He's telling them there's a battle for the hearts of your children, and you've got to do something about it. You've got to be disciplined in your warfare at home. God says, Here, Israel, 
the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall repeat them diligently to your sons, and speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, and you shall tie them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's the point? Instruction in the way of the Lord, day in, day out, no stop. When you look at how strongly and disciplined and just crazy the SEALs train, or the Green Berets, these special forces in the U.S. military, they train, why? Because their lives depend on it and the lives of others depend on their training. It's serious. But then when we think about this for our, our children, and when God blesses us with children, He's blessing and trusting us with souls. And there's not a greater responsibility than that. It's not just you. It's now the soul of someone else. And what God says is you need to train day in, day out, nonstop. And you need to make this discipline, this correction and instruction to be incorporated in everything you do. This isn't something you just do on Sundays. This isn't something you just do on Wednesdays. This is something you do every single day. You look for opportunities to instruct your son and your daughter. You talk to them. You repeat the words diligently and you speak with them. You have to engage with them on this. And you have to demonstrate to them that this is the most important thing in your life. In a real sense. Because you can deceive the elders. You can deceive the preacher and all the brethren here. And you can look and present yourself as someone who cares about God. But you can't deceive God, obviously. And you can't deceive your children. Because they see you when we see you. Think of having a reality television show follow you every single day of your life. They follow you at every moment. And then they said, okay, we're going to follow you. And however your life is going to be, we're going to put it into a replicator machine. And this replicator machine is going to make Christians just in the form of you, and it's going to fill the church. Whew, what would that church be like? Would it be an active, evangelizing, studying, a zealous church? Or would it be one that is just mediocre, skating by, lukewarm, and spewed out of the mouth of Christ? Wow, that sounds really intense. And you're like, well, that's just a hypothetical. I'm glad I don't have to think about that too much. No, that's how your kids are. Your kids see you all the time. And your kids are going to follow after your footsteps. You are impressing on them who God is and what this system is. And God says, take it serious. Train them day in, day out. Don't go into your house or out of your house without talking about who I am and what God has done for Israel. And yet, what do we do? We don't talk to our kids about God. We don't pray with Him. We don't sing with Him. But we'll have time for other things. We'll have time to watch the football game or the basketball game. We'll have time for our hobbies, time for our jobs, time for all these other things. 
And it may be that you can get away with it with other Christians because many of us as adults, we've all have our pocket idols that we keep around that we like to attend to. And so we can give each other a pass. It's like, yeah, you know, I, I know that brother, he, he's just crazy about football and it's a bit obsessive, but I've got my obsessions, so we're just going to agree not to really trample on anybody. And there's this uneasy alliance of keeping our hidden idols. But our children see our hidden idols. And the interesting thing that we need to come to grips with about this idea of idolatry, which is another sub-theme of this meeting, is that we become what we attend to. When I talk about attending to something, I mean focusing and attention. This is an amazing thing that not a lot of people think about. You have the choice on what you focus on right now. You are thinking about something. I don't know what it is. Maybe you're thinking on my words. Maybe you're thinking about the nachos you ate or what you're going to do tomorrow or the baseball game or who knows. A million things you could be thinking about and attending to. And each one of us makes choices about what we attend to in life. That is the most fundamental thing that we choose to do of what we focus on. In Deuteronomy 6, God is saying, attend to me, attend to my word, focus on that. Because there are so many distractions in the world around us. There's jobs, entertainment, there's lusts of all sorts. There's so many things that we could attend to. And many times we want to minimize this and say, well, what's the big deal about attending to other things? What's the big deal about having to focus somewhere else? Sure, we'll keep our focus on God on Sundays and Wednesdays, but what's the big deal? Because attention demonstrates who we worship. What we attend to is what we actually worship, is who we actually serve. And the things that we focus on, the things that we attend to the most, those are our gods. We cannot say that God is in the first place in our lives and attend to other things. Whatever we attend to the most is that first priority in our life. Psalm 115 verses 4 and 8 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. The more we attend to something, the more it fills our hearts and we reflect the nature of what that actually is. It's no wonder that people who gravitate and attend to a certain thing form clubs to do that. It's a religious experience. Whether it's football, whether it's a concert, whether it's a certain movie that everybody loves, they're attending to the same thing, and then they become reflective of those things. I'm sure you all have seen like Harry Potter nerds or Star Wars nerds, right? What are they doing? They're embodying their attention. They're embodying their focus. They become what they focus on. They become what they celebrate. The same thing happens with us. But what, as we, what are we to focus on as exiles? On God. Deuteronomy 6 says we need to be radically focused on God all the time. And we need to give that example to our children. And our children will see that. They'll see what our heart's desire is. They'll see if our hearts light up when we sing a hymn. They'll see if we feel like going to church is an obligation that we have to drag ourselves to. They'll see if we open our Bibles every day or not. They will see these things. They will see our attention. They will see our false gods. 
and they will follow those as well. We might be able to make compromises and deceive others, but we are not able to mock God, and we are not able to mock our children. Another metaphor that God uses on this is in Galatians chapter 6. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. In verse 7, Galatians 6 verse 7. For whatever person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. I like agriculture. I go and plant tomato seeds. What do I hope to get? Bananas? No. Tomatoes. Why? Because I planted tomato seeds. And I cultivated them and I took care of them. But yet, how many of us as parents are sowing seeds to all these other forms of attention, but we feel we're doing the minimum amount? Well, I'm taking my kids to services. I'm making sure they're in Bible class. And then when they depart from the faith in 10 years, in 20 years, I'm shocked. Now listen, I know that every single person, regardless of what their parent did or did not do, has their own decision before God. They have their own free will and they must stand account for that judgment and that decision. But parents, more than anyone, are given the responsibility for that instruction and that training and the discipline that is there. And I've spoken to way too many parents that are flabbergasted that their children have fallen away because they say, well, I did the things I was supposed to do. But when you dig a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper than just Sunday morning, a little bit deeper than just Wednesday night and Sunday and Bible class on these forms, and you say, well, did you pray with your child ever? Well, yeah, we prayed at, at meals. No, no, no. Did you teach them to pray like Jesus taught the disciples to pray? Well, no, I, I never had discussion. Did you read your Bible every day with your child? Well, no, I, I didn't read my Bible every day with my child. Did you talk to your children about difficult topics? Did you instruct them in the way of faith? Did you wrestle with these things? As Jacob wrestled with God and strove to figure out what was the foundation of what he believed in. Well, no, we, we didn't really dive into any uncomfortable things. Well, you sowed tomato seeds. You were hoping to get a banana, and you got tomatoes, and you're shocked. Look, I know this is not popular to say. People get really sensitive when we talk about parenting. And I know as a parent, it is super hard for me to be honest and self-reflexive and to say, you know what, I messed up. I didn't dedicate God in my life. I didn't follow Deuteronomy 6. I thought about it, but I didn't apply it. I was radically dedicated to God in getting up and teaching my family in the way of God. I let all other forms of attention get in my way. And I attended to false gods all during this time while I left my family bankrupt spiritually. And instead of taking responsibility, we still, men, especially fathers, we fall in the same sin of Adam. When instead of standing up and saying, yes, we sinned, we mess up, who do we want to blame? Oh, it was the woman who did it. Oh, it was Satan who did it. No, it was our failure that did it. And if we are going to start to pay forth a better legacy as fathers and mothers, as families, and as a church, we need to come to grips that we have not done well collectively 
over the last 50 years in terms of making this a priority. It is not enough just to come to church. It is not enough just to come to Bible class. We must embody Deuteronomy 6. We must sow to the Spirit completely and give no room for Satan. Are we focusing on instructing our children in God's Word? Do we have a set plan and pattern for their instruction? Have we established customs and traditions that emphasize God's Word? Are you reading the Bible with your children every day? Do you emphasize the things that truly matter? Parents, ask yourself this, and I'm not here to judge you, because I'm not perfect on it either. But are you reading the Bible with your child every day? Grandparents, do you do that with your grandchildren? If the answer is no, what are you doing? And I don't, I don't mean that glibly. I don't mean that to bash you or condemn you, but like, ask yourself, what are you doing? What do you attend to? Notice the difference between two fathers. They wake up on Saturday morning. And the first thing one does is says, let's read the text. Let's pray together. Let's dedicate this day to God. Versus the other father who doesn't mention anything about spirituality and says, hey, you ready to go to the park? You ready to go fishing? You ready to go out? Let's go to that baseball game. And then goes. The two can do things both at the same time. They can do the exact same activities, but the father has situated an entire framework and said, no, we're putting God first. He's going to be the emphasis. When we go out to the park, we're going to talk about the Creator. We're going to situate everything in terms of God. And a lot of people say, well, that's just radical. You're just being a religious zealot. Well, what does God call us to in Deuteronomy 6? Have we forgotten already that God says, these things are going to be as a front on your forehead. Oh, that's just too much, God. No, God understands this battle requires 100%. We need to lay everything on the battlefield because it is that important. It is fundamental in terms of our existence. And yet, we get so distracted. If our children grew up to be exactly like we are right now, would we be pleased? I think if we're honest, and if we set aside pride, especially fathers, if we set aside pride, and mothers, if we would set aside kind of tradition and protectionism, I think all of us would say, yes, we want our children to succeed us in every way, right? Does that include spiritually? And if so, what are we doing to help them succeed us, to be better than us? To be trailblazers of the faith. This requires a preparation from us now. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, after God sets this forth and says, you need to be radically dedicated to teaching your children. He says in verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the provisions and statutes and judgments mean, which our Lord has commanded you? God tells him, here's what you're to say. This is one of the most... Heartbreaking things I've experienced as a preacher. And I've experienced it in almost every single state that I've preached in. And it crushes me every time I hear it. When a young person comes and asks me, Caleb, can you please explain this to me? I don't understand what's going on. 
the first thing I ask that young person, if they're under the age of 18, I say, have you spoken with your parent about this? Most of them will say, yeah, I'm, I mentioned it to mom. I mentioned it to dad. I said, okay, well, what did they say? And they said, well, they didn't know. And so they sent me to you. Now, let's be very clear. I'm not expecting parents to have all the knowledge as someone who's dedicated in study, like an evangelist or an elder. But in every one of those situations, and I, and I can list you at least six situations off the top of my head right now, and there's probably a whole lot more of that that I've encountered uh, secondhand in, in similar situations. But in every one of those situations that happened, the child came to me by themselves. And I thought about that. I'm like, these words should be coming from the parent first and foremost. And if the parent doesn't have the knowledge, the parent should be here too. There are situations where my son, who is six, he asks me questions and asks my wife questions. There are sometimes we say, we don't know. But what do we do? We don't just punt, kick him down the road and say, oh, well, go ask this other person about it and you'll figure it out. We say, you know what? That's a great question. Let's figure it out together. Let's go ask someone together because I want to know too. If we want our children to have an open desire for truth and a curiosity to know more about the great unknown Father that is there, that is our Creator, that we seek to know Him, but yet we have no curiosity of ourselves. We have no desire or search for truth ourselves, and yet we expect for them to succeed us in that way? Hypocrisy. We should not be doing that. God expected the Israelites to be able to answer their children. He expected them to be intimately engaged in the instruction of their children. Did they follow that example? No, they did not. In Judges, the second chapter in verse 10, it says, all that generation, and they're talking about Joshua's generation, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and another generation rose up after them who did not know the Lord, nor even the work which He had done for Israel. And that lack of teaching and education caused a downward spiral of darkness and sin and suffering for 500 years. This battle has impacts more than just your children. This is a war that can have impacts for generations to come. Whether for evil as what happened in Judges or for righteousness, what happened with Jonadab and the Rechabites. And it's interesting that when we think about our lives as Christians, many times we emphasize the importance of being light in the world, right? We're supposed to shine forth the light and teach others about it. And a passage that's often cited in evangelism is 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. May I submit to you that this verse should first apply in the home that you need to be sanctifying your hearts in Christ and ready to make a defense. Why? Because your children are going to see the hope that lies within you. They're going to see mom and dad don't belong here. They're not like Babylon. They're not like everybody else. My parents are almost like extraterrestrials. Why is that the case? Are they just crazy? Mom and dad, why do you do these things? 
And it's at those moments that you testify of the love of Christ. That is your first and most important evangelistic field. And yet many of us fail on that. We don't think about sanctifying our hearts to Christ. We don't think first about dedicating ourselves and making ourselves a radical warrior for the faith like Jonadab was. But we compromise. We think it's too radical. We put one foot in Babylon and one foot in the church and think that we can continue to hobble our way through and so long as we conduct ourselves and enforce these uh, fundamental requirements and minimalistic requirements of church attendance and Bible study attendance, our children will be okay. No. We have to be 100% on board for this. So I challenge you, if you're not reading your Bible every single day, tomorrow pick it up. Read one chapter. It takes two minutes for most chapters in the Bible. Spend two minutes with your child in the morning. Spend two minutes more with them in prayer. You're at four minutes. And spend two more minutes, six minutes total, giving them a word of benediction, a blessing, of encouragement to face the day. That's six minutes. That's all you need is six minutes to start. Can you give six minutes for the welfare of your child? Can you give six minutes to fight for the soul of your child? And then do it the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, for the rest of your life. This is a lifelong endeavor. It's a lifelong battle that you have to fight. And there are many who are not prepared for that. There's a sad example in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 3. Eli, the high priest. He's got two sons that are terrible. Hophnius and Phineas. And instead of following after these examples of godliness, instead of following after the, the instructions of God in the Pentateuch to discipline his sons, Eli makes compromises. And his sons are already adults. And perhaps Eli thought, well, you know, I tried and it just didn't work out. What more can I do? God expected more of Eli, even though his children were adults. He expected discipline. He expected them to be radically teaching his sons. But instead, Eli forsook his duty. And thus, God says in 1 Samuel 3, verse 13, For I have told him, Eli, that I am going to judge his house forever for the wrongdoing that he knew, because his sons were bringing a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. It doesn't just stop when your kid turns 18. It doesn't stop when they get married. This is a lifelong battle that we have to be prepared to fight. And it's interesting, a lot of parents think, you know what, what can I do? I try. And I can't imagine, and, and some people have challenged me when I've talked about some of these things, say, well, Caleb, you, your kids aren't old enough, so you don't know what it's like to have a child and be apostate. You're right, I don't know what it's like and from a personal standpoint. But I do know what it's like in terms of what the Scripture says about it. I do know that we should... Be trying to find that lost sheep and bring them back into the fold. And we should not deviate our attention to give them solace to think that their false God that they have chosen is somehow going to be satisfactory. If this were an idol that we could see, and I go to my son's house, and he has an idol of Molech or of Diana or of Baal, would I just be like, oh, I'm not going to pay attention to that? No. I would contend with him on it. 
until he destroyed the idol or until I died. Because that battle for his heart and for our home is the most important thing that I have to fight for. But there are positive examples. Men who dedicated themselves and dedicated their household. Everyone loves to put up nowadays the passage from Joshua 24, 15. But as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. It's not enough just to put that mantra above your door. You've got to actually discipline and make it real. And if you say, well, what if my kids don't follow? Okay, that's their choice. But you are going to be speaking about God. You are going to be speaking about the true one. And you are going to be battling the false idols with your final breath. Do not make it easy for them to choose the path of destruction. Follow God's patterns for discipline as we read of in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3. Do not deviate from your focus. And that starts now. And if you have not done that, whatever situation you're in, if you have children in your house right now or your children are adults, wherever you're at, and if you realize now, you know what, I've not followed God's command, I've not been diligent, I have not fought this battle for their soul with my all. I've been lazy, I've been complacent, I have sinned, I've made mistakes. And I can tell you right now as a father, I have done those things. I have erred. But instead of justifying myself, say, well, it's not that big of a deal. I need to repent with humility and sackcloth and in ashes and say, now is the day that I will change. No longer will I continue to deceive myself, for I know God is not mocked. What I sow is what I will reap. And I'm going to sow the Spirit with every single word that I have. And I will go down fighting for their soul. It's hard. It takes work. And it's scary. But we have to be strong. We have to be courageous. Think about the words that God gave to Joshua in Joshua 1, verse 7 through 9. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may achieve success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will achieve success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You might be thinking, Caleb, you are a crazy radical. What you're proposing today is just insanity in terms of zeal. You're right. I am. But that's the point. We are not meant for this world. We are not meant to be normal in this world. We are not meant to conform to the means of Babylon. And to supersede and conquer Babylon, we must be radically different. And that begins in our homes. So let's be strong. Let's be courageous. And let's press on knowing that God will give us the strength to be the radical exiles he expects us to be. Thank you, brethren, for your attention this evening. And in all of this, we seek to reflect the pattern that God has given. God is the great father. He is the one that we have to hope in and trust. He is the one that shows us compassion and shows us discipline as well. And he calls you, if you are not a Christian, to become one. He calls you to submit to him and accept him as the true one father.
And if there's any way we can help you with that, or if you are a Christian, and perhaps you have failed in this, perhaps you're a parent or a grandparent, and you need help, you need repentance, and you need the prayers and the help of the congregation, and the directions and encouragement of other brethren and the elders, we're here for you. Together in this, we can wage war against Satan, and we can win the battle for the home. And if there's any way we can help you make your life right tonight with the Lord, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.